before we start, I need to get something off my chest. Um, I showed up at this church uh, this morning and walked around for about an hour, shook hands, talked with about 50 people or so, and not one of them pointed out that my zipper was undone. No, don't look now. You lost that, that <laughs> chance. And I just want to say we're better than that. If we want Jonathan's prayer to come true, then let's stick together. If you see something, say something, please. Okay. Um, years ago, a word began to form for me that would drive the way that I would teach. And it was a word that I used as a filter um, uh, because there are many things that are true to say and many things that are important to say. But I really began to sit around this question of, but what's most helpful to say? What would really help someone? And so for years, I, whenever I would get up to teach and I'd have a podium like this or maybe it'd be a table or it'd be a music stand or whatever, I would imagine that there was this word helpful written there. And before I'd lay my Bible down, I'd, I'd see that and it would remind me. And I, I feel like the job of our teaching team here at Pulpit Rock is to give you glimpses of the kingdom of God. To show you not only the way that it will be, but the way that it could be. And to begin to unlock your kingdom imagination for how you're going to journey with Jesus. And so a few years ago, uh, my friend Luke surprised me. He had built a new podium for me, and it was really amazing. I want to show you the top of this real quick, just so you can see it. Can you guys see that? It says Lepreha. No, <laughs> just uh, We'll put it up here on the screen so you can see it. It says helpful. And that word may not mean a lot to you. That may be a weak word or whatever word for you. But for me, it's so powerful. And I love the fact that every time I stand here, I see that it's, it's a reminder, hey, is this story going to help? Is this truth going to help? How will this help someone journey with Christ? And so it kind of, this, this thought began to lead our leadership to these questions. This question, really, if we could imprint on our congregation the most helpful truths about loving God and loving others, what would those be? How would you answer that? Think about that for a minute. If you were answering this for your family or a group of people that you were leading and you were like, well, gosh, there's so many things I could teach my kids or so many people I could teach in this class, but what would be the most helpful ones? And we want to do this from, in all of our environments, from large groups like this to small groups to students and kids and adults. And, and where this question led us, it led us to these seven different truths that we found were most helpful in people's journey. Seven truths that we wanted to come back to time and time again. And we would look at how we would put together teaching calendars and such and go, okay, we haven't talked about this for a while. Where does this weave in? Now, normally these seven things kind of just undergird uh, what we do. You, 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 they're not really out there, um, like in, in seven st statements or anything. However, if you've taken our second table or you do that, that's actually going to be walking through those and, and get you uh, comfortable with that. But this is the time of year at Pulp Rock in January where we do something. You guys hear a T-Rex? Okay. Is it? I just hear this boom. Okay. That wasn't helpful. Uh, this is the time of year at Pulp Rock where we do something. We do a yearly membership affirmation. Uh, we don't do kind of the country club model of you sign a card and then you're in for life. We every year start fresh and say, let's renew our commitment to one another. 
Let's renew our vows to each other in this place and, and, and how we're going to travel for this next 12 months together, and then we'll do it again in January. And so we thought it would be a great idea to kind of review these seven things out loud and over the next few weeks, and as we're moving towards that time of giving you a chance to pray about your affirmation here in a few weeks, that, that this would help undergird that. And these truths we find all throughout Scripture, but something we thought would be fun to do this year is to find them all in one place. And so we're going to find them all in the book of Hebrews. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews trying to unpack some of the things that we think are most helpful for people's journey with Christ. Okay? So if you'll turn to Hebrews with me, that's going to be a letter you're going to find in the New Testament, and we're going to be in chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me give you an overview of what these seven are. It's me. That's awesome. Uh, so, if you think about this horizon, this sun and the horizon, above the horizon is this relationship with God, below is our relationship with people. Above the horizon, we feel that knowing your identity in Christ is very helpful, that learning how to follow Jesus in sustainable ways for a lifetime is helpful, learning how to listen and respond to God is important. And as we think about uh, the relationships we have with other people, uh, relating to our neighbors is really important to us. Living in community with one another is really helpful. And then there's one that if you've been around, we've changed this word recently because we realized it wasn't as clear, uh, but, but realizing that we have been sent by God into this world to share his gospel. That's something that's important to us. But at the center of all of this is a word, and it's the word we're going to tackle today, and we think it's the most helpful truth, and that is the word gospel. And so I want to take a minute out of Hebrews 1 to kind of unpack what we mean at Pulpit Rock when we talk about the gospel and why it is so helpful for us, okay? Now, if you are, have turned to Hebrews, one of the things you realize, it's a letter. Um, I like to think of Hebrews as the New Testament sequel to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. It's kind of got a similar path to it. Both of those have people who were held captive by some things, and yet they've now stepped down into freedom, but they're facing some pressures and some situations that make them want to go back to their old way of living. That's what we saw in Exodus. It's what we see here in Hebrews. These, these people were in a, a very constraining religious culture, and then Jesus comes along and says, I want to give you life and freedom, and they start following him. But all of a sudden, the, the, the culture around them is putting pressure on them. Their family members are coming to them saying, why are you in this cult following this Jesus? You know, come back to the fold. And, and so they were thinking, we should go back as well. And the whole book of Hebrews is really written to encourage people, don't go back. And the argument he uses for not going back is a three-word argument. It's very simple. It's that Jesus is better. What Jesus is doing to us and through us is better than anything you had under your old way of life. So there's really nothing to go back to. Keep going with Jesus. And so let's pick up this story in, in Hebrews chapter 1. We don't know who the author of this letter is, but we know one thing, that this author is focused, laser focused on Jesus Christ. And here he begins in chapter 1, verse 1. In many ways and by many means, God spoke in ancient times to our ancestors in the prophets. But at the end of these days, he spoke to us in a son. That son is Jesus. If you think for a minute about the, your favorite things you've ever heard 
read that God had said. Maybe it's an amazing story. Maybe it's beautiful poetry that you find in Psalms. Maybe it's the Ten Commandments. Maybe it's the fact that he just spoke a word and the universe came into existence. God has said some amazing things. And yet the best thing he ever said was Jesus. Why is that? We keep reading. Because God appointed this son to be heir of all things through him. In addition, he created the world's. He's the shining reflection of God's own glory, the precise expression of his own very being. He sustains all things through his powerful word. Jesus is not just a word God spoke. He's the precise expression of God's very own being. It's so fun to be in a church like this for a long time and see babies grow up uh, and see them get older and begin to look more and more like people, their family. And uh, I loved at... um, Advent this year, we had David and Hope Onfeld were up reading, and their parents were sitting on the second row, uh, just about as proud as they could be, like ticks are about to pop, and they were so excited to watch them. And I was looking at David and Hope while they are reading, and I thought, good night, they look so much like Aaron and Deb. They look like mini-me's of their parents. Jesus is not a mini-me of God. He is the precise expression of God's own very being. This means he doesn't just look like God. See, this phrase, precise expression, refers to the process of engraving an image onto a coin. You take a coin like this, and it would be hot, heated up. It's just a piece of metal with heat. And we take a stamp, and we carve out the image. In this case, the, the headshot of George Washington. And then when it's hot enough, we would stamp that and pull it away. And now this coin bears the exact precise expression of the stamp. If all of you pulled out a quarter and looked at this, you would see the exact same thing because it's the precise expression. Jesus is not just really like God. He bears the exact stamp of the Father. Now, what this means is this. Jesus is God's final word. If you've ever wondered, what would God think about this? What would God feel about this? What would God do about this? You don't have to wonder. You can look and see Jesus. You see God's heart, his thoughts, his nature. In Jesus, we see what makes God smile and what angers him. We we see what he thinks is beautiful and what he thinks is ugly. This is why at Pulper Rock, especially over the last few years, we've been trying to orient more and more of our time towards focusing on the person and the work and the the stories of Jesus Christ, his miracles, his tales of the kingdom. uh, Because we realize we see Jesus, we get God. So here's the question then. If God has been speaking all these things and been saying all these things, well, what was it he needed to say more? What, what else did he have to say? Why would he send Jesus to say what was left? Well, I'd like to suggest that Jesus didn't show up just to say something, but to save something. Look at verse 3. Jesus accomplished the cleansing needed for sins and sat down at the right of the majesty supreme. He accomplished the cleansing needed for sin. Somehow there was a cleansing that was needed. What is that all about? Well, if you remember, Jesus often would talk about why he came. And he said this. He said, the reason I have come is so that you might have life. Life is the point. God created us for life. And yet we have, in so many ways, we've turned away from that life of God. We've turned away from that life with each other. We've even done it by turning away from the life within ourselves. And this is called sin. 
anything that turns from the life that God created would be sin, the life that God intended. And so God had set up a system to deal with our sin. If you remember this, we talked about this a few weeks ago in our Advent thing, that we would have these rituals that would cleanse us temporarily. And a, a priest would take an animal, just an, uh, uh, an unwilling participant, just but this innocent little animal, and he would sacrifice it once a year. And it was to represent that life mattered. And when you would sit there and you, maybe your kid would be with you and they'd be looking up and seeing life pour out of this thing, it was a sobering moment. Hmm. Sin's a big deal, and life is a big deal too. But the problem was that this was only a temporary thing. Guess what the priest had to do the next year, and the next year, and the next year. It never solved the problem. And one of the things we realize about God is God never wanted a system. He wanted life. And so he sent his son to replace the system, to accomplish the cleansing needed for sins by taking the place of the sacrifice to offer his own life. And that's why we, as people who say we follow Christ, do this really odd thing that I don't see done anywhere else. We take the most disgusting, vile, horrible, evil creation of man, the cross, and we wear it around our necks, and we tattoo it on our wrists, and we hold it up in our uh, uh, sanctuaries and we sing songs about it. Th this is a horrible, th the cross is an example of the worst of humanity. The cross is a, a, a device designed not only to kill someone, but to torture them in the most painful way imaginable. We came up with this. And Jesus says, I'm going to willingly go to that ugly thing and I'm going to redeem it. And this is why we sing songs about the cross and this is why we sing songs about what Jesus did and this is why we celebrate the cross. Because God did something really ugly and horrible and said, that's not holy. I'm going to make it holy. And that's the gospel. God created us for life. We turned away from that life. Jesus sacrificed himself to offer us life. And we believe in him and we believe in this and then we have life. So that's the gospel, right? But I'm wondering if that's all there is to it. This Christmas season, I was listening to the radio, and this song came on. It had this line, and the line was, I'm not going to sing it for you, so I'm just going to say it, but the line was, the reason for the manger was the cross. And I thought, that's a pretty good line for me to hear. I need to be reminded that Christmas is not just about a little baby, but that, that, that Jesus came for a bigger purpose. That's a great line. But as I, start, I, I listened to that song and that, that line, I felt like something was missing, it kind of felt like a gospel that began in Genesis 3, where we first turned away from God, and kind of ends at this cross where we can find faith and be restored to God. And I'm wondering if there's something we're missing. And then we come back to Hebrews, and I think Hebrews tells us that the gospel is actually bigger than we thought. Look at verse 4. See how much greater he is than the angels. Jesus is. The name he was granted is finer than theirs. For which, to which angel did God ever say, today you are my son, today I am your father, I became your father? Or to which angel did God ever say, I will be his father, he will be my son? Again, when God brings the firstborn son into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In relation to the angel, this is what it says. God makes his angel spirits and his servants flames of fire. Feels like a little bit of a left turn, right? Why, why are we talking about angels? What did I miss? Well, People back then revered angels. 
They saw angels as these flames of fire. They recounted stories of times in history where an angel had shown up and the angel brought a message from God and you listened to that and you, you were uh, awed by that. In fact, so many times uh, people would fall down and worship these angels and the angels would go, no, 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 get up, don't worship me, I'm just the messenger. And so they valued, even back then they had this high value of angels and yet he's saying even though angels are these spirits, these flames of fire, guess what? They turn around and they worship Jesus. Jesus must be better. And his message must be better. Why is he better? And here it comes in the next sentence, verse 8. In relation to the Son, however, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, the author in Hebrews is going to do something throughout this book that we see happen in a lot of New Testament uh, uh, letters. And what they do is they take some passage from the Old Testament that referred to one thing, and they said, hey, guess what? All along, that was really talking about Jesus, but we didn't know it yet. And he does that here. Here, these words, your throne, O God, forever and ever, this is actually Psalm 45. And it was written about King David. But here, what he's saying is, no, actually, this is really about King Jesus. That Jesus is the one who sits on a throne forever and ever. And Jesus is the one that has a kingdom he's over. And if you think about it, if you've ever read a gospel or, or looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you can't go one page without stumbling on somebody talking about the kingdom. And it's usually Jesus. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is among you. I must tell the good news of the kingdom. He would tell stories about, okay, imagine the kingdom of God is like this big part. And he just talked about the kingdom all the time. What is this kingdom like? Verse 9. You love justice and you hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, anointed you with the oil of gladness as superior to your comrades. This kingdom that Jesus is sitting over is a kingdom of justice. It's a kingdom where lawlessness doesn't work. It's where everyone has enough. It's where no one is left out. It's where all are welcome. It's where access and equity are everybody's. It's life as God intended. You see, the cross was just the first step in his master plan to create a world where evil at last has no place. The reason for the manger is not the cross. The reason for the manger is the kingdom. It's bigger than this. This is what he was working towards. And he had to come to the cross to deal with that issue of evil and sin so that he could build this thing. So question, where is it? I don't know if you've read CNN lately or, or if you've looked online or if you've looked around or if you've even looked at yourself. I see a lot of lawlessness. I don't see this kingdom. If he's really a king, maybe he fell asleep. But we keep reading. Verse 10, you established the earth, O Lord, from the beginning and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will be destroyed. But you will remain. All of them will grow old like clothing, like a worn-out t-shirt you finally have to throw away. You will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like clothing, but you are the same, and your years never give out. The author's quoting another passage of a psalm, but he's again making it about Jesus. He's saying there's a day that's coming that this world and all that we know and all that we can't know and see is going to be destroyed and replaced Jesus is going to roll them up just like one of our rolled up pieces of paper on our prayer wall over there. And it's going to be destroyed. And in its place, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, the kingdom. Life as God intends. This is the gospel. 
It's King Jesus working towards restoring all things, uh, working to dispose of all the world's kingdoms and create a brand new kingdom that cannot be shaken. Verse 13, but to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand? The answer is none. Until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. What we're seeing here is at this moment, Jesus is sitting on a throne. No angel ever sat on the throne. No, no. It's only for a king. And that is why our focus in the gospel always has to be on the king. This king Jesus and how he's moving us towards a time of justice, salvation, and peace. This is the gospel I want to give my life to. Not a gospel that begins in Genesis 3 with our sin and ends at the cross with us saying, well, good, we're forgiven. No, the gospel that Jesus taught begins in Genesis 1 with life. And it ends in Revelation 22 with life flowing out forever in a kingdom forever and ever. Amen. This is the big picture. And this is what we're working towards and sharing. But it does lead me to a troublesome question. It's a question I've actually wrestled with for decades of my life. So why, why doesn't the king show up and get his hands dirty and build the kingdom? What's he waiting on? Let's get it done. Show up. There's stuff to do. I've thought about this for much of my life, and I've come to a conclusion. This is my conclusion. It may not be yours. There's a great Anglican priest called Bishop Tutu, and he tells the story of visiting a community of people in Rome. It's called the, Cert, the, the Church of Sant'Egito. It was founded in 1968 by a group of Roman high school students. What happened was, uh, some of them started to follow Jesus, and they start, got these Bibles out, and they started reading and soaking themselves in the lives of Jesus. And so every night they would meet together, and they would read the Bible. And they did this weird thing where they're like, well, we, we should probably just do the things that he said to do. Okay. And they started this kind of underground movement. And as they read more and more about who Jesus was, they began to look around them and see all around them were, was the not holy. And so they said, well, we're going to do whatever we can to make the not holy holy. So they made the not holy holy when they set up refuges for the old and hospices for AIDS patients. They made the not holy holy when they printed up a handbook called Where to Eat, Sleep, and Wash in Rome. And they started handing it out to homeless people. They made the not holy holy when they began to share with people the story of Jesus and how he rose from the dead. Today they continue. This community is still alive. Uh, the kids are older now. They continue to make the not holy holy as they lead global efforts on HIV and AIDS. They run programs across Africa. They advocate passionately that everybody deserves the best care. That's this community. So Bishop Tutu's visiting this community. He's taking a tour. Oh, very nice. Oh, that's great. They take him up to the altar. Now, in our tradition, we have a cross, but we don't have Jesus on the cross. Many of you may have been in a tradition where you would walk into church and there would be a Christ on the cross. That's called a crucifix. So this, in this tradition, they had Christ on the cross. He looked at it, and he noticed that something was wrong. And he finally figured out Jesus didn't have any arms. There's just this, this Christ figure on there, but he didn't have any arms. And so he asked the tour guide, he said, hey, where are the arms of Christ? He was told this, Christ has no arms except your arms. That's so slammed, yeah, it's so slammed, Bishop Tutu, that he went down and he goes, what does this mean? And he wrote this, he said, God looks down at God's world, and I think there are moments when God cries. When God sees how we, his children, treat one another. And maybe he says, whatever got into my head to create this lot? 
And then maybe God looks down and sees the community of Santa Gito, and God smiles and says, well, they make it worthwhile. And he said this, God the omnipotent one depends on us, fragile and vulnerable creatures, to accomplish his will and to bring justice and healing and wholeness. God relies on us to help make the world all that God has dreamed of it being. This is my conclusion in life, that we are the hands of Christ in this world. He is going to restore one day, I believe that, but we restore with him today. And we both hope for this future, but we also act in the now. And we look to wherever it is not holy, and we say, what does love require to make this holy? And I do believe that one day he will fix it all, and until then, we fix what he calls us to. We're not going to fix everything. Well, then what are we supposed to do? We do the most that any of us can do which is more than nothing and less than everything. And so what this means is that when we talk about uh, the gospel here at Pulpit Rock, we believe that it's bigger than we dreamed, that Jesus did not just come to deal with my sin, but he came to deal with everything. He came to address all the evil and all the wrong and fix it up back towards life that he intended. And this is the gospel we are sent to share and show. We share the gospel when we proclaim the kingdom, when we tell the story of our journey with Jesus, when we talk about the resurrection we believe in, when we say, hey, this is, the, this is my understanding, and, and here's what's going on. We teach people about forgiveness. We share it, but we also show the gospel when we demonstrate it, when we care for others, when we stand for those who cannot, when we are generous, when we welcome, when we make the not holy holy. You know, there's something, I'm, I'm, I'm just playing with this. I'm going to throw this out to you. Our team's talking about this a little bit. Traditionally, churches have measured how successful they were as a church by the three Bs. Do you guys know these? Budgets, baptisms, butts. I'm sorry, it, it, this started back, you know, 2,000 years ago. I wasn't going to come up with this. <laughs> But a church would say, hey, if the line on our graph of our, our budget is increasing and, and if we have more and more people being baptized and we have more and more butts in the seats, then we're being a successful church. That's great. But that feels to me like such a small gospel. What if we started measuring how well a church was by the decrease, by the less? What if the line was going down? What if there was less homelessness less divorce and less poverty because of a church? What if there were less lies meant to defame and less chains and less burdens and less racial divide because of a church? What if the numbers of people in pain and suffering and disconnect and loneliness and teen suicides and lack of access to health care was going down? What if the number of people who don't know about Jesus and the life he offers, what if that went down? These are harder to measure but boy, that's the gospel I want to be about. And it's a gospel that begins and ends with King Jesus. So at Pulpit Rock, we think the gospel is a pretty helpful truth, and we put it right in the center of our diagram because it orients us towards this bigger story called the kingdom, life as God intends. As leaders here, we commit to you that when we talk about the gospel, we want to talk about the whole gospel to you. But today... Let me give you a question to ask Jesus Christ. This is a personal question for you to ask him and to answer with him. Jesus, what are you calling me to do with the gospel today?
He might say, I'm calling you to believe in me, to trust me. He might say, I'm calling you to share this gospel with someone, and there's someone's name that you're thinking about. I'm like, yeah, I need to talk to them. It might be that he's calling you to show the gospel to someone. There's something that you feel like God's been calling you to do, and you're like, ah, but you realize now, i got to step into that because that's the kingdom. And in a moment, we're going to take our communion together, and I want you to know that you have freedom during that time. If you want to go over to our prayer wall, uh, maybe there's some, a prayer you want to write. Maybe there's someone's name you want to write. Maybe there's a candle you want to light as a representation of a prayer that you have. But I want to keep this question up while you come to the table. Because the table does not just look backwards to this meal with Jesus. It actually looks forward to the next meal with Jesus in the kingdom when we're having life as God intends. So as you come to the table, would you consider, what is Jesus calling you to do with the gospel today? Will you pray with me? Jesus, we are grateful that you saw the not holy and decided to do something about it. You took the not holy of the evil destructiveness of a cross and you made it holy through your sacrifice. You took the not holy of our lives and you offered us a way to be holy through faith in you. You continue to use us as your hands in this world. And so we yield to all of these, Lord, and we ask you to speak to us. What do we do with your gospel today as we come to your table? I want to invite us all to stand and take just a moment and look at the screen and really think about that question.